Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jason Bedrick joins us again today. He was with us a year ago to discuss some education issues. Uh, He is a research fellow at the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. He is here to discuss a controversy that erupted last fall that involves uh, religious, religious liberty, religious freedom, and education. And I'm going to allow Jason to just give us the background, uh, the whole situation for you. And first of all, let me, let me welcome you, Jason, and ask what happened uh, way back in September uh, in a certain, a certain newspaper that we're familiar with. Yes. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mark, for having me on the podcast again to discuss this very important issue. Uh, It really has been an issue that's been going on for years, uh, where uh, secular uh, folks at the New York Times and in the government, in in both state and local government in New York, have been cracking down on a particular religious community, uh, that of Haredi Jews, which... uh, uh, Haredi Jews, some know them as uh, Hasidic Jews. They're, they're not exactly the same thing, but uh, these are essentially the more traditional element of the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, which lives in New York City in large numbers, particularly in certain uh, neighborhoods in uh, Brooklyn, um, but also in some other uh, communities uh, outside of the city. Uh, and they run what are called yeshivas. Uh, these are... Uh, these are religious schools that uh, spend a majority of the day engaged in religious study. Um, and what has happened is that some former members of the community uh, believe that they were deprived of an adequate secular education. Uh, some of these schools are only spending about an hour and a half a day on subjects like English language arts and math. Uh, they wished that they had had a more robust secular education, uh, and they had been agitating for years to have uh, the Department of Education enforce the state's substantial equivalence statute, uh, which essentially says that all private schools in the state must provide an education that is quote-unquote substantially equivalent to the public schools whatever that actually means. Uh, essentially, this, um, this statute was enacted in the late 1800s uh, around the same time as other anti-Catholic uh, legislation that was intended to, first, there were like the Blaine Amendments that, that made it impossible for states to fund Catholic schools while the public schools were essentially at the time non-denominational Protestant, uh, and also just sort of control and, and contain these uh, Catholic schools. Uh, but it's, it's basically been dormant for a century. 
but now they're saying that these schools have to be substantially equivalent. Uh, this went through the, the state did step in and say that they were going to reinterpret the substantial equivalent statute. Uh, so so to, did uh, yeah, let, uh, let me ask you, did these people file? Did they file a complaint with some education oversight board? Where, where did they? Where did they go? To, they filed to, complaints. They also were uh, agitating in the press, particularly in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and and some other uh, local papers. Uh, just a, a constant campaign of agitation trying to get the government to crack down. Uh, the government was very slow to move, uh, I think for a number of reasons, one of which is they have a hard enough time managing their own massive school system, which has all sorts of problems despite spending more than $30,000 per pupil. Uh, and the idea that they were going to uh, force a school system that they don't directly oversee and don't fund, uh, at least, uh, you know, for instructional purposes, uh, doesn't really make much sense. So they, they dragged their feet for a number of years, but now we're in a situation where, um, last September, the, the board of regents actually, um, they had a vote on whether or not to adopt new regulations that would substantially change the relationship between the state and private all private schools, not just the yeshivas, although the yeshivas are the, the primary target. The New York was Times this, was this before the New York Times story or after the New York Times story that they did the vote? Well, the vote, the New York Times story was uh, came out the day before the vote. So the New York Times clearly knew this vote was scheduled. They had been covering this issue for a while, but they had two reporters that supposedly for uh, two years had been working on this story. And coincidentally, on September 11th, they come out with this article uh, that was titled um, Failing Private Schools Flush with Public Cash. Uh, right. right. So in, insinuating that these schools are, are not doing well and that they they were getting um, more than a billion dollars uh, in New York Times is uh, telling. Now, what The New York Times uh, didn't tell you is that uh, at least not not at, at first, you have to kind of dig into the article. Um, they add several years to reach that billion dollar figure. Right. Because a billion sounds like a, a lot. Um, they don't tell you, though, uh, how much that is per pupil. But if you, if you break it down uh, with all of the students that are in the yeshiva system, uh, we're actually talking about a few thousand dollars per student, uh, far, far less than the more than $30,000 per pupil that they're spending at the public school system. And most of it is for things like uh, transportation, school lunches, um, you know, after school um, child care programs, uh, things that are available to everybody in the city, uh, not stuff that ha that goes on in the actual classroom. Uh, but this was very clearly time to influence the vote. And, and they the Board of Regents, without uh, any debate, uh, unanimously accepted the uh, the proposed regulations, even though. Uh, there had been a record number, more than 350,000 public comments overwhelmingly opposed to these regulations, uh, but they didn't want to hear any of it and they just passed the regulations. Hmm. 
I, I should say that you and Jay Green uh, penned an article responding to the New York Times story entitled, The New York Times Botched Attack on Jewish Schools. And by botched, you mean uh, misleading statements such as what, what you just mentioned about the funding, also just basic errors, that factual errors that they made uh, about other elements such as test scores. What, what about the test score issue? Uh, did the New York Times misrepresent? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. Um, first of all, they didn't uh, cite the regents' exams uh, because on the regents' exams, uh, some of the yeshivas are significantly outperforming their public school peers in English, math, science, and history. Uh, and 19 of the 20 top average private school scores on New England on, on New York's English language arts exam were by uh, Orthodox Jewish schools. Uh, hmm. But what they said was, well, we didn't include the regents exams in our report because uh, not all of the um, uh, Hasidic schools actually took the regents exams. So, you know, it's a biased sample. And that's true. But uh, the data that they did include from a different statewide exam uh, also was not taken by uh, all of the Hasidic schools. And uh, so in, in those, they point out that, uh, an, you know, the, there were a number of uh, Hasidic schools that did uh, very, very poorly. Uh, but what they then do is essentially compare the Hasidic schools um, where students speak English, uh, most of the students in these schools speak Yiddish as their first language, and most of their instruction is in Yiddish, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Um, only their uh, English language and math classes would be in the English language. But the rest of the day and at home, they're speaking these other languages. What the New York Times does is compare the performance of these students uh, against essentially all uh, low-income students in the state and say, well, they don't do particularly well. But really what you should be doing is uh, you should be comparing them against uh, English language learners uh, in the rest of the state. And so what happens when you look at the English language learners who are taking these very same exams? Well, there are 155 schools in New York City where fewer than 1% of the English language learner students performed at grade level on the 2019 English language arts exam. And, and we use 2019 because this is pre-pandemic, so we can't say the pandemic caused them to be, no, this is pre-pandemic. Uh, likewise, in more than 95% of New York City's public schools, at least two thirds of the English language learner students fail to perform at grade level. So why is the New York Times not writing you know, uh, 5,000 word breathless takes on the failure of the public school system that's serving, you know, 90% of kids uh, in New York City. Instead, they're focusing on a minority of a minority of minority, right? Not just Jews, but Orthodox Jews, not just the Orthodox, but the Hasidic Jews. And they're concerned that some of these kids aren't doing well, even though at some of the yeshivas, they're doing very well. Uh, it's, uh, it just really doesn't make any sense, uh, unless you understand that this is actually the tip of the spear. Uh, so, this is not yeah. just about the Orthodox Jews, right? Yeah. I want to, I want to get 
get sure. to that where we, we go to deeper motives here. But first, let me just ask another clarification quickly mm-hmm. about post-graduation outcomes that, you know, economic outcomes, success yeah. uh, there. What what did the Times allege and and did you offer a correction on that? Yeah, so the Times essentially paints this community with a broad brush and says that, uh, you know, quote, poverty rates in Hasidic neighborhoods are some of the highest in New York, right? Uh, so they're saying essentially these kids are, are failing to get an adequate secular education and then they're going on uh, to, to live uh, desperate lives of poverty and dependency and high welfare use. And, and, but they don't actually have data, so all they have is insinuation. Uh, the funny thing is even some of their anecdotes were a little off. Uh, like one of the anecdotes was a, a, of a former Hasid who, quote, struggled to earn a medical degree. Uh, which is to say he earned a medical degree, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> but it was hard. Unlike for everybody else where, where you know, med school is a breeze. But for him, it was tough. Yeah. Uh, okay. But let's, let's assume that the New York Times is correct, that poverty rates are higher in Hasidic communities. Uh, the thing is, though, if you look at poverty rates, this is a distorted picture of the earning power of this community for two reasons. First of all, Uh, If you're looking at poverty rates as opposed to income levels, poverty rates are tied to family size, and Orthodox Jews have much larger families, about 6.5 children per family on average, whereas Mm. uh, I think the rest of the country is is below replacement rate now, right? Below below 2.1. So even if you have two families that are both earning $100,000, right? Uh, but one has eight kids. Uh, well, that family might be classified as being uh, either not below poverty, but but they would, uh, in, depending on the figures that you're using, they would be classified as near poverty, whereas the other family with two kids would not. Uh, the other yeah. thing is that um, if you have larger families, this translates into a younger median age, right? So among Orthodox Jews, the median age is only 35. Uh, whereas it's 46 for the rest of the population. So you're really catching these families. Uh, you're catching them at an earlier stage in their earning life cycle, right? Hmm. So it, it artificially lowers um, how much it, it looks like they're earning. Uh, what you want to do is look at their actual earning power, right? If, you're, if the concern is, do they have the ability to function in the modern economy and make a decent living, well, then let's actually look at their income rates, right? So in the 2021 Pew Research Center survey, 22% of Orthodox Jewish households earned more than $150,000 compared to 8% of the general public. Uh, Mm -hmm. And only 26% of Orthodox Jews earned below $50,000 compared to about 50% of the general public, right? So they're more than twice as likely to be higher income. They're less than uh, half as likely to be lower income. But the way the New York Times portrays this community is that uh, they, you know, they're they're in desperate poverty. Now, those numbers were about Orthodox Jews generally. We're talking here specifically about Hasidic Jews who don't necessarily line up. Uh, it's harder to get data on the Hasidic Jews. There is one 2021 study by a group called Nishma Research, uh, which found that although Hasidic Jews were on the lower end of the Orthodox spectrum, 
um, the median household income was still above 100,000, uh, whereas for the rest of the, the modern Orthodox, it was, it was closer to 180,000. Uh, but it's clear that there's um, Hasidic Jews are equally or better prepared to earn a living than the median American. So why the New York Times is making all this giant fuss uh, remains a mystery. Well, let, let's let's get to that, Jason. What is maybe I'm going to generalize it? What is the problem? Liberal Manhattan, liberal New York, has with these schools? I think it is because. These schools and these communities reject liberalism essentially ostentatiously. Uh, I think they would have a very similar reaction to the Amish if the Amish lived in Brooklyn instead of, uh, you know, rural Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Uh, it's essentially a community that says, uh, we're not interested in the rat race like you are. We're not interested in your values, uh, we want to live peaceably among you right here in the city, but we're going to live our own lives the way we want to live them. They are very countercultural uh, in that sense, uh, where uh, New York and, and other uh, liberal enclaves are increasingly have this sort of woke orthodoxy to have a traditional orthodoxy representing a challenge to that set of values. Uh, and seeing them walking down the street every day, I think, produces a visceral reaction among a certain corner of the secular left. And uh, just like in other areas, uh, you know, it starts with uh, tolerance, uh, but then it's you shall bake the cake. Uh, here, too, uh, the left has moved away from the traditionally liberal value of tolerance uh, and is trying to force their worldview onto this religious community. And I think it's really, it's the tip of the spear because if they're able to bend the Orthodox Jewish community to their will, it doesn't stop there. It sets a precedent that allows them to go after every community of faith. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. I, I have to wonder... You, you use the term visceral reaction when they see those people. Yeah, this is not the live and let live, you know, do your own thing. Liberalism that we, you know, 20th century. We saw, why not just leave them alone? Why, why, why do you just ignore them? What, what is the problem? I mean, again, I, th I think you're right. I think the word is visceral. What, I mean, is this an insecurity? Is this liberal insecurity? It is, uh, uh, uh is it liberal envy of some kind? I see big families. I see stability in these communities. I see forms of independence and, and self-direction and faith. You know, the consistency of faith. Does that, does that bother them? I think to some extent it does, right? Because this, uh, you know, in their worldview, religion is supposed to be dead or dying, right? 
and yet here are communities that are rapidly growing. They have very large families, very tight-knit communities. Uh, I mean, really, uh, the New York Times should be doing profiles on what these communities are doing right. Uh, in the secular school system now, uh, you've got high rates of anxiety, higher rates of teenage suicide. Uh, you know, in just secular society writ large, uh, we're seeing an increase in deaths of despair, whether suicide, overdoses, etc. Uh, yet in these communities, very low rates of suicide, not without problems. It's, these are still human beings that have all the flaws that human beings have and that human communities have, but much, much lower rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, drug use. Uh, and so what I think secular society should be asking is, what is the secret of this community that they are doing yeah. so well? Well, uh, I, I read recently that the New York public schools have lost some 150,000 students mm -hmm. in the last two or three years. Is that correct or is that an exaggeration? No, that's not an exaggeration. It's actually probably an undercount uh, because the data coming out um, is, is always behind uh, by a considerable time frame. So uh, some of these are families that are just moving out of state, moving to Florida and Texas and Arizona. Uh, in other cases, it's uh, a lot of families that have said that we're done with the public school system. They've taken their kids out. They're either homeschooling them or sending them to private schools. Uh, so, yes, the, the public school system in New York and, and in a number of other states uh, is really suffering because of the decisions that the public school system, uh, or, or I should say that the people running the public school system have made that are turning off families. It makes me wonder if there is a, a broader motivation here. We're losing students. We're losing our reach on the young. And so this legislation... In, in Albany is we, we're going to reach into the private schools, the religious schools, the home schools, even to make sure that uh, that, that our our vision is is intact. Well, yeah. So that's that's I think the main concern about this substantial equivalence doctrine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so right now, what they're doing is they're saying, well. There's 11 different subjects that are required. So it's not just, you know, math and, and reading and science, right? There's 11 subjects. We're talking about 17 and a half hours a week, three and a half hours a day uh, where you have to be teaching these things. But I don't think it stops there. Right now, we're just talking about, it's not just the basics, but let's even say that we were just talking about the basics, right? Once the government says to private schools, for which, again, they are not paying for any instruction. But once they say to the private schools, uh, you need to teach the following things, you are now setting a precedent. And if you want to see where this leads, I would direct you to what's been going on the last few years in Britain, even under, by the way, Tory governments. So in, in Britain, a number of religious schools, uh, Orthodox Jewish schools, Christian schools, Muslim schools have been receiving failing grades when previously they were passing the state uh, inspections. So what, what's changed? Well, they're all still you know, hiring um, you know, credentialed staff. Uh, their students are passing the national exam with flying colors. Uh, they're teaching their children 
uh, to respect everybody, no matter their race or religion or, or uh, national origin. Uh, so where are they failing? Why are the why is the government uh, in Britain telling these private schools that they are at risk of being decertified and having all of their children declared truant because they're failing to teach British values? Okay, well, what does that mean? Are they are they failing to teach respect for the monarch? Are they failing to uh, teach about the importance of the Magna Carta? What what is British values? Well, British values have morphed. And so now their version of the Department of Education is saying that your schools need to be teaching that uh, men can marry men and women can marry women and that boys can change into girls and girls can change into boys. And they're going into these schools. And uh, by the way, one of the one of the Jewish schools that received a failing grade was a girl school grades one through three. Right. So it's not even we're not even talking high school. They're going into the very early ages and they want to make sure that these kids are being told these things. They're going into middle schools and asking, uh, you know, girls in very traditional communities, uh, are you know, uh, do you have a boyfriend? Or are you having sex with them? Uh, you know, what are you doing on Facebook? All these sorts of questions, very intrusive, not asking the parents first, not even telling the parents about them, going in and doing these sorts of things and then, and then potentially failing them. So if we set that precedent here, that the public, the private schools have to be substantially equivalent when, frankly, the private schools, the parents are choosing these private schools because they're substantially different than the public schools. But if they're required to be substantially equivalent, it's only a matter of politicians and government bureaucrats deciding how to interpret equivalence. Is it the hours in the day? Is it the subjects taught? Is it the content? Is it the values? And that's ultimately where the left wants to go. Uh, and they're losing, as families are leaving the public school system where the left has had a lock for decades, now the left is going to try to turn their attention to private education and try to force them to bend to their will. Uh, so it's very important, uh, anybody who is a champion of religious liberty in this country needs to pay attention to this case and do everything they can to make sure that the Orthodox Jewish schools win because if they lose, it sets a precedent for everybody else. Uh, one quick question, then I'm going to get to the legislation. When uh, did the New York Times ever print any correction? Or no, absolutely not. They, they have not printed any corrections, uh, despite uh, Jay Green and I and a number of others calling them out for their various distortions. And you know, they even highlight that they talked to 275 members of the community. Uh, well, this is a community with hundreds of thousands of people, and the, the 275 they spoke to are mostly former members who are, uh, you know, activists uh, who are, you know, disgruntled. But they're not giving, you know, you find any community, any religious community, any secular community, you're going to find uh, some people who are upset with the way they grew up. Uh, and you're also going to find a, a lot of people who are very happy with the community and are choosing to continue to remain in it. Instead of hey, Jason, I'm I'm upset yeah. with the way I grew up and, and with some of my schooling. Where can I go? Yeah, no, exactly. Look, who can uh, I talk to? I mean, in my own life, I grew up in a secular Jewish home, uh, and I became Orthodox in my twenties. Uh, where do I go to get the education in the Talmud uh, and in you know halacha and and all sorts of you know the, all these Jewish subjects that that I didn't have when I was growing up? 
Well, I don't hold yeah. that against my parents. My parents did the best that they could. They gave me the education that they thought that I needed. Turns out that when I grew up, there was something else that I wanted. Uh, and so then I had to go back to school for that and play a lot of catch up. Uh, yeah. The important thing is that, you know, in, in these yeshivas, they may not be getting the same content uh, that they're getting at the public school system or on other school systems. But they're getting something I think that is more important. They are learning how to learn. The yeshiva school day starts much earlier than the public schools and ends much, much later. Uh, some of these kids are staying to five o'clock by high school. Some of them are going back for a night session. Uh, and what they're doing is almost like higher level humanities work. Okay. Uh, you're sitting down with a partner with a text that is not in the tongue that you speak at home. Uh, sort of like you would do maybe with reading Aristotle in the original Greek or Virgil in the original Latin. And it's a complex text. And you and a study partner, a chavrusa, uh, are going to dive into this text and try to understand it on its own terms. And, and you see, you know, Rabbi Akiva says this and Rabbi Eliezer says that and Rabbi Yonatan says this third opinion. And uh, then you look at some of the medieval commentaries of Rashi and Tosvos and they both understand the debate in different ways. And so before long, you now have nine opinions. And, you know, who's saying it? What do we learn from, you know, who it is that, that's saying it? Uh, uh, why are they making this case as opposed to that case, right? Uh, if you're able to sit for many hours a day reading a highly complex text in another language uh, and learning to love learning, those habits of the heart are going to allow you when you grow up to acquire any other body of knowledge. Yeah. Last, last question. What is the status of that legislation, the, the equivalents right now? Yeah, so this was adopted by the Board of Regents. Um, they are beginning to implement it, but there are going to be a number of challenges. Uh, there is a lawsuit uh, right now from Agudath Israel and a number of other groups that are trying to slow down the implementation or to block certain aspects of it. Uh, so this is going to be uh, an ongoing case. Uh, when the Board of Regents had tried to do these regulations before, there was a lawsuit uh, where the um, challengers won, but not on the merits. They essentially won on technical grounds. So they didn't reach the core question of, you know, is the government allowed to do this? It was just they didn't go through the right process. They didn't have public comment. So it put some sand in the gears and slowed things down. Now we're at the point where they're going to start trying to implement this, uh, and we'll see with the coming lawsuits and other political maneuvering uh, to try and slow it down or reverse this. But I think fundamentally, uh, folks in the state who care about religious liberty need to repeal the substantial equivalence law itself. That's the fundamental problem. Uh, yeah. We shouldn't have a law that is telling private schools that they must be substantially equivalent to the public schools when families are choosing private schools because they're substantially different. Let me refer listeners to the article, which appeared in the Washington Examiner. It's called The New York Times Botched Attack on New York 
schools. Uh, Jason Bedrick, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And if I might, uh, there, if you want a longer treatment uh, of this question and the please, uh, please. and the uh, implications for other religious communities, for homeschoolers, uh, and and just for people who care about educational freedom writ large, uh, Jay Green and I, the uh, my co-author of that piece, uh, are also co-editors of a book called Religious Liberty and Education, a Case Study of Yeshivas versus New York. We will have a link to that book uh, as well as your article on the website. So Jason, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.